Welcome to Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. This is episode 18. I interview one of the MAM students. His name is Matt. This episode is going to be really interesting because Matt is living in recovery from addiction to opiates and other substances. It's really an interesting story and I guarantee you guys are going to like it. And we're live. Let's do this. Well, Matt, cheers to our drinking our tea on this gorgeous Wednesday evening night. Um, thank you so much for being on Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. This is episode, I think you're going to be 18? 18? I don't know. Whatever. Um, we are trying to release this in September for recovery month because uh, we're both in recovery in two different ways sort of thing. While under the DSM-5, we both technically have a mental illness. Our experiences are vastly, vastly different, but I imagine today we're going to find a lot of similarities too. So you are someone who is in recovery from addiction. Yep, I've been in recovery since 2009 when I was 19. Okay, awesome, awesome. And right now you are... Right now I am uh, in, a, in a Master's of Medical Sciences program. Okay. So yeah, you're you're taking it's we call it at PNWU like MAMS. Basically, the MAMS students take the first uh, like biochem course with all the med students. So they're side by side all the med students. They end up taking some classes with pharmacy students, and then hopefully they all get in because they're they're all pretty cool. My uh, little doc mentor is, was in the MAMS program, so I wish you the best of success getting in next year to PNW, and hopefully this interview maybe even will help. Uh, your chances of getting in. I don't know if any admissions committee listens to this. Probably not, but I can hope. Um, that'd we be awesome. We can always share it with them, too. Yeah, I know. Just keep emailing it to them, spam it to them. Yeah. Okay, well, cool, man. So how did you really know to reach out to me? How did you kind of hear about this? So I was interviewed at PNWU in, at the end of February earlier this year. And uh, so right around the time that I was being interviewed, I liked PNWU on Facebook and on Twitter. And... Uh, at some point this spring, I saw uh, either PNWU reshare one of your podcasts or or something, or you posted directly to their page talking about um, wellness and mental health, and I was like, oh, I like this. I really, um, I like to gravitate to people who are openly talking about these issues, because one of the problems in the U.S. and in the world is that we have such a silence around mental health and, and substance use disorders and lots of other marginalized problems and um, it's really essential that we, we uh, all of us advocates get together and, and speak out not just so that we can break stigma but so that people who need help and need to be in recovery have those opportunities to see us out in the community opening up so I I've been actually wanting to talk with you and wanting to meet you um, for maybe five six months now and Brad cool man well yeah I actually got on the PNWU podcast which I think you would be a great fit for too. Um, you know, even though we're, we're about two minutes into this, I think you'd be amazing on that podcast too with Paul. It was super, super fun. And PNWU has been so supportive of me being open about my mental illness. And, you know, I don't know if that kind of culture exists in other medical schools. I hope it does, but I, I haven't really seen it in social media in the same way. I don't know. I don't know either. I, I do know some students in recovery at other medical schools, and so far I haven't found them to be as vocal about it as I am. And some of the admissions committees actually did did flag them and were a bit worried about um, 
their criminal history or their mm-hmm. drug history and wondering whether that would make them a competent physician. And I think the skills that people have to enter recovery and to go through the end of their substance use or their mental health challenges and turn that corner are exactly some of the qualities that we want in physicians, that patients want in their physicians, and they really will help us in our career. So Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I don't see... Uh, it's it's hard to say whether any any other medical schools are are doing recovery stuff like this. Yeah, and it's it's like a weird paradigm because physicians are at a greater risk of being depressed, uh, being addicted to substances, going through a divorce, like all these you know rough, challenging things in someone's life. And so I think because me and you are so open about our experiences. Yes, I get that we're probably in a higher statistical chance of shit hitting the fan maybe later in our career and not being good. But I would argue the on the other side, like we're maybe more in tune with, with what's going on us mentally and more able to actually use the system because we won't have that shame surrounding actually accessing mental health care uh, if and so when we need it. Also, um, up to 15% of physicians and I would say that includes medical students too are going to struggle with addiction, with mm-hmm. an active addiction. And so who better to help someone um, than work through the end of their addiction but someone else who's been through it. And we can certainly help um, not just on a one-on-one level, but we can help the medical schools and the medical system put systems in place to better um, screen and treat and and um, better the lives of people with this. Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly. Well... You know, I haven't known you. I only met you, what, all of two weeks ago. But I have the full confidence that you will make an amazing physician one day. Um, I hope you take... I mean, I know I have to go through rotations. I have to do the whole song and dance. But really, my heart is set on psychiatry at this point. And I hope yours is, too. Because I know that you're going to be so able to help people, you know, especially with addiction issues. Just because you can say, like, I've gotten through this. I've lived with this. And I've been able to make it to medical school eventually. Definitely interested in psychiatry. Uh, I shadowed um, a really great psychiatrist in Maine who travels uh, actually three and a half hours to see his patients. Wow! Um, every other weekend he goes for four days, and and um, he's not just good because he he understands the the science, and but he I mean he's got a great sense of humor, and he's very open, and he can develop strong rapport with them and get them to talk about the deep dark things that they don't want to talk about with anyone and it's kind of where I'm at too I like living in that uh um well in the dark stuff yeah well and that real desire for me to be a psychiatrist is part of the reason why I started this podcast because I hope that potential patients one day you know they're going to have a whole bunch of episodes hopefully by the time I'm a psychiatrist to listen to will get a sense of who I am and hopefully they'll like me. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that, you know, because right now going to a psychiatrist is not fun for the most part. I haven't really enjoyed my psychiatry visits when I've been there. So hopefully this, these interviews and my patients hopefully will get a chance to know me a little bit. And so our, our conversations will be at a higher quality when, when we do have those psychiatric consult appointments. So I encourage really all of my classmates. I'm like, you guys should be podcasting too. Like, yeah. I think telling, I don't really want to travel four hours <laughs> to <Right>. see patients, <laughs> but I think telemedicine is the future. And I really think that all of us are going to be doing this in some capacity. So I encourage everybody to start our own podcast. I think you should start your own podcast. But all right, no shifting gears here. 
I want to hear about... Let's start with Baby Matt. Or not necessarily Baby Matt, but of course, like, childhood. Like, at that point of your life, do you think you, your parents, or anybody in your life really could see, like, okay, he clearly is going to be at higher risk for addiction, or he already is showing addictive personality traits? Obviously, there's a big debate between is it genetic, is it environmental, and... There's even de- there's debates in the medical community. There's debates among people in recovery, and it's definitely a mix of both. I didn't know very many people who had addiction in our in our family history. My um, I think my uh, maybe my great uh, I forget my great grandmother maybe, and my grandmother might have had. Had some. There was some mental health stuff on my mom's side all throughout, but I don't think anyone knew to think Matt, you could become um, you're prone to addiction. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, I actually remember um, seemingly being very normal as a kid. Okay. And actually, it'd be fun to ask my parents now whether they thought I was yeah, if they normal, agree with that. whether they yeah. saw some of these signs. Yeah. But but uh, I had a great childhood for the most part had the same kind of struggles that other people did figuring out going through stages of life and who are we what are, what are we doing here and what's yeah. the world like and, but, and this um, was in Maine you were growing up in uh, born in Chicago oh okay and then we moved uh, in the blizzard of 1996 we drove to Min- um, to Maine there we go and so I actually I wrote a great uh, creative writing essay uh, I called it the, the blue canoe where um, I was five, my sister was two, or maybe we were six and three, and um, one of us rode with mom, one of us rode with dad, and there were two cars driving cross-country, and the movers were coming with our stuff separately. So we were driving through the blizzard. My dad had uh-huh. a big blue canoe strapped on his two-door um, brown uh, Honda, uh-huh. and... Um, I can remember, uh, and actually my mom can remember very vividly, just following this blue canoe, Ah. traversing the highway. And if my dad were to go off the road, my mom would think, well, that's just the way the road goes. So we're just going to follow it and and hope that we're still on the road. So that was, um, it was interesting to have such a vivid memory from so young. I can't say I have too many other vivid memories. I don't think I can remember anything from when I was five. Not anything significant, at least. I don't know. That is crazy. But so, so did you like Maine growing up in the, cause you're going from Chicago, like a big city to Maine where it's the sticks, you know, what, what was that kind of, well, I guess you were so young, you probably like didn't really notice too much of a transition. The geography was, was similar and the cold and the snow was similar, but I think being removed from my friends was really hard for me and I don't think I transitioned super well. And, but even at the age of five? I mean, I think I transitioned fine, but I... Um, I deeply missed my friends, okay. and, and um, luckily I found a really strong group of friends when I got there, and so I that um, I was pretty much fine. Just a happy old after. first grader. Yeah, happy old. Well, happy nice. Old. So, okay, so normal sort of childhood, you know, nothing really too significant. Um, you know, was high school kind of a typical high school awkward, you know, prepubescent teenager kind of thing? Or was it something different? I would say I started to notice a change within myself around fifth, sixth grade. Okay. A uh, little bit more pressure 
from my parents as I was starting to get more assignments and wanting to not do them and my parents wanting me to do them and my parents um, saying, hey, you should find some extracurricular activities and I was doing tennis and basketball and playing the piano and um, I didn't always think, uh, I was still trying to figure out, I guess, whether I liked all of those things and but I, I started noticing that I didn't handle some of the pressures. I don't understand. I started. Oh man, Siri's coming in. How is Siri coming in? She uh, she wants the podcast. I guess I have no idea. That what was, did we say so that she turned on? I don't. She it was <laughs> clearly vividing though. Either, okay, so back back to the story. So you were basically under. You felt like immense pressure in fifth and sixth grade to just do as many things as you can it sounds like they were already trying to groom you into basically the perfect college applicant so when though did things start to really get bad maybe when did you start uh using any substances or starting to feel depressed so i had um i had a strong group of group of friends and and considered myself very outgoing fairly confident reasonably talkative um until around sixth grade or so when I started really clamming up more and feeling a bigger disconnect among my peers and like uh, getting in my head more and wondering um, whether like I was cool or whether they thought I was cool and mm-hmm. whether I should I don't know it just it, everything started to seem off and I can't necessarily link it to any certain events but it from there it started spiraling downwards and um, the basketball team was always important to me I uh, enjoyed playing basketball a lot, and the team mentality, and was was okay at it. I wasn't near the near the best, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed it, and the team made me feel a part of the team. And basketball got to be a, a very touchy subject, as I could clearly see uh, the people who were really good at basketball getting better, and me just kind of staying stagnant. Mm-hmm. So coaches obviously want to want to play their best players, and so I I started losing playing time and didn't make the eighth grade team went to the expansion team and actually the expansion team was great I really could shine mm-hmm. um, so that could have been a really strong positive where I said I'm, I'm rising to be a leader and the point guard of the expansion team but I took it as really a negative that um, I'm not good enough yeah so that inner mentality started coming about where I'm not good enough I'm not fast enough I'm not smart enough I'm not talkative enough and somehow I got the idea in my head that the people who were the most um, popular in school were the ones who talked the most. Okay. So I was just, I became this guy who was um, really quiet, introverted, shy, uh, didn't talk much um, in school, and uh, just said, I'm, I'm not popular. And popularity was everything in, in yeah. middle and no, high school. Yeah, it is, of course. Yeah, through, through high school and everything. And, you know, you grew up, wait, how old are you? I'm 28. Oh, okay. You're not that much younger than me. Oh, okay. So you this was still like you know smartphones and everything weren't necessarily a huge big thing. No, I used uh, to use AOL and okay, we'd there get we a go. Phone AIM. call and you could put yeah. it off the internet. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, nice. All right, all right. Us us old millennials, yeah. I guess it's kind of okay. All right. So still though, you were dealing with that depression. You know, you you didn't make like the team. You weren't feeling popular. You know. I can remember kind of feeling that way as a kid. Like, I remember with baseball, I always flirted with being on varsity and JV, and that was really annoying. I always, you know, growing up, one of the things I always felt most self-conscious for was my body type kind of mm-hmm. thing. Because I felt like I wasn't necessarily a fat kid, but certainly wasn't a athletic 
build either, you know, shopped in the husky section. And so I always remember, like, I tried to compensate for that by being the loud, kind of funny guy sort of thing. But really, I I was lacking a lot of self-confidence issues, especially in the summertime when all of our friends would go to the pool and stuff like that, just because, you know, my man titties would just be bouncing all around the place kind of thing. So, you know, definitely... I think we both dealt with those areas of self-confidence in in high school. But I think so, so many people can relate to that feeling. So when did that depression really transition into using substances? So life life kept building. The pressures kept building. um, And it seemed like a lot of my classmates were just able to deal with all those pressures and and I could So what was those pressures for you like where are you going to go to college what are you doing after high school like I grew up in um I went to Cape Elizabeth High School which was um it's in the top 3 school systems in the state Okay and uh, private school public school? public Okay but there's a lot of affluence Okay um there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of lawyers a lot of doctors a lot of um, mm-hmm. CEOs and who had probably very high expectations of their their kids as well and yeah. there's a strong element of competition i mean we were always in many of the sports we played we were generally making it to um like the class finals okay. or the semifinals and so everything just was was uh, really competitive and i never i mean we're probably all competitive but i never considered myself as competitive as everyone else and Sort of just wanted. It was like, why can't we all just get along? Why do yeah. we have to be fighting with each other? Yeah. Uh, so I, I just didn't seem like I was quite like everyone else, and I, I kept reverting more and more into my head, unsure how to get out, unsure how to express these feelings. Everyone just kept saying, "Well, you'll figure it out. It's okay to struggle. Just power through it. Don't talk about it." Mm-hmm. And still, that attitude of. Um, of silence was really there, and it, it still is there. In in Cape Elizabeth, there um, still is a strong code of silence. It's like if you're if uh, you're doing something, don't talk about it. If you see something, don't talk about it. Hmm. And so I was. It was ingrained in me. You'll just power through these struggles eventually. You'll get to high school, and it's a clean a clean slate. You'll get to college, and it's a clean slate. And all those clean slates just weren't clean enough Mm -hmm. it um i didn't transition quite as well and it just i never quite figured it out and so about um when i was 16 i actually when i was 15 a buddy of mine had some hard alcohol and he was like here you want to drink with us yeah and um i said sure and i tried a shot or two and uh i didn't like the burn i didn't like the taste i didn't like the feeling um, but one thing that really stood out, even though I definitely didn't get drunk, I acted like I was because I wanted to fit in. Oh, okay. And uh, I probably didn't drink again for another six months, and but that six months later, I did get drunk. Okay. And I found I liked beer better than hard alcohol. Yeah. Um, but it didn't really take off from there. I just noticed uh, I felt the way I thought I should. I felt like my head was clear. Okay. I felt confident. I felt talkative, like I could be me again. Um, okay. And um, from there, it kind of took off. I mean, no one, no one ever forced me. Everyone says peer pressure is so strong, and peer pressure can be strong, but yeah, no one forced me to do it. People just said, 
hey, we were struggling with some things too, and then we found drugs and alcohol, and now yeah. life is great. I mean, at the end of the day, drinking beer is fun, kind of in a sense, or at least the beginning of it, where you know people are a little bit more social and they're interacting a little bit better. And so, would you say that? At that stage, the alcohol was kind of alleviating some anxiety for you, or did you just like the feeling of maybe being intoxicated? It was quieting my head. Okay. My head was so full of, well, who knows what else. Some uh, there were some were toxic thoughts. Some were just really ruminating thoughts. Okay. Um, but I found that it turned off my brain, and I wanted to to have that clear, quiet brain. Okay. And so that was um, tremendously powerful for me. Not, um, I, uh, let's see, in my teens I was not sleeping well. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of it was because I couldn't turn my mind off. And so when I would drink or do other drugs, it turned my mind off. I'd slept better. Mm-hmm. And I felt better. Um, so I, I was basically screwed the first time I tried it and liked it and knew at that point that I basically wanted to to be not me for the rest of my life. Oh, Chemically okay. altered. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, you started drinking at, you know, whatever, 15, 16. Similar to, I, I think, actually, when most people, most of my friends at least, started drinking. So when did that transition go from you just drinking here and there at school parties or whatever to more typical addict sort of consumption where it's like, you know, by yourself, it's every single day, it's to a point where it's a blackout level, or, you know, was it, were other things added in there besides just alcohol in high school? Or, you know, when when did this kind of really start to derail? And actually, before I'll get into that, but before I get into that, um, one of the things that I, I talk about a lot and that the country is starting to talk a lot about is language around addiction and substance use disorders and the word addict creates a lot of really negative connotations, as do the word substance abuse and any other associated uh, term. I mean, you think of an addict, and you don't think of someone who, who is really well put together. You think of someone who's sticking a needle in their arm. Mm. That's just what the public does. So we're trying to avoid using the word addict, using the phrase substance abuse, because um, what I mean, what when you think of abuse, what do you think of? Well, you think really carnal, violent, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Um, and people aren't abusing substances the way that people would be abuse other people. I mean, substances really are were the solution for my life. So it's almost the exact opposite. Okay. So language is really is powerful. Um, there's a lot of research coming out now that um, people get actual, people get better medical care when their physicians um, see them as a person with a substance use disorder versus an addict versus a substance abuser. So it's really powerful thinking about that shift as well. Well, that's one thing I I tried to teach my patients when I was working at an addiction center. Because I would always say, I was like, all right, you guys can listen to me, but realize like I'm not not someone who has uh, an addiction disorder. Like I have bipolar disorder. So I'm not going to sit here and like try to preach to you, but I'm just going to try to say my experiences. And I would say I never... Same thing kind of in the in the mental illness community. We try to say, like, I'm not a bipolar. Or mm-hmm. especially the one we really hear the most often is, I'm not a schizophrenic. Yeah. Like, as a noun. And because it, it, then that turns into your entire identity kind of thing. 
And so I would always say, like, I have bipolar disorder. And I was like, I think you guys all have an addiction disorder. And according to DSM-5, that essentially is a mental illness kind of thing. And so that's what I was just really trying to teach them in my time at Mountainside Treatment Center in Connecticut. So, but the weird thing was, is, you know, post-recovery and addiction, at least where most people are sent, is to AA meetings and NA meetings. And, you know, hi, I'm Logan. I'm an alcoholic is the first thing that everyone introduces them for. And so it just, like, so hearing you say that, like, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and I think it should be that way, but right now it doesn't seem like it's that way in the addict community, at least the addict community that I was exposed to. Yeah, and uh, and there's a lot of a lot of clash around um, is the language shift just a political correct movement mm. among the general society as well as among the recovery community, and people people enter recovery um, and really latch onto that identity that um, I was an addict or now I'm a recovered addict and it really it's a strong sense of pride and so I'm it's uh, my mission isn't to try to convince uh, people in recovery to label themselves differently they can self-identify however they want mm-hmm. but we're talking about uh, addiction is um, oh, what's the phrasing there was a, a study conducted in 17 countries that um, showed that addiction is the number one stigmatized condition in the world. I don't even know where I was going with that train of thought, and I speak on this topic all the time. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> I, it definitely makes sense because, like, when when I at least tell people my story of, like, how I was having grandiose ideas, I was in this manic episode, you know, I was hearing voices, they're like, whoa, shit, that was crazy. <laughs> like, and they're like, yeah, please keep taking pills, Logan, my God, or, like, see a therapist. You know, because they, they, I mean, I people get weirded out by the word crazy. I think it's yeah. kind of awesome. I like the word crazy, so whatever. But people, I feel like, look at addiction disorders, and they're like, just stop drinking or stop, you know, using opiates, like... From the outsider perspective, it seems so easy. And so I think that's why it's so stigmatized in a sense, where it's like the solution seems so easy, but the actual result of achieving that solution is extremely, extremely challenging. Um, so I think I, that's at least why I think it, it is so differently stigmatized than other mental illness. Yeah, and, and uh, actually the recovery movement has learned a lot from the mental health movement in the 90s as well as the, the AIDS movement in the 80s. And there are people who are in recovery who are part of that AIDS activism mm-hmm. and are teaching us how um, uh, what they did so that the public stopped stigmatizing that condition or started or, or stigmatize it less than they used to. Yeah. So we're learning a lot from those and try not to reinvent things we have some of the machinery already and people who've been through these movements that can teach us about what we need to do to change public perception yeah yeah certainly man so i love that little tangent by the way this this, this is the beauty of a conversational podcast so let's get a little back to the story sounds good okay so we're at the point of the story where you're kind of boozing whatever maybe you were doing some other stuff whatever it doesn't really matter what i want to hear about is when did this start to be really detrimental to your life when did it start to really become essentially an addiction so at 16 i was away from home where i was on a trip with um with a group of others and uh and it was April 20th, so uh, we were like, we're going to smoke weed. Yeah. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever smoked weed. A lot of people um, say you never get high on the first time. 
I got high on the first time. Yeah, that's not true. And, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And and loved it. Laughed hysterically. Had a great time. Uh, I was glad I wasn't around anyone other than my friends because they would have given it away. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was great. I loved again the same thing. I I really I wanted to be more talkative. I wanted my head to be calm, and I wanted just to feel okay. And weed and alcohol both did that for me. And so I started. Um, I probably smoked weed once a week or so on regular hours, like weekends, and then. Mm-hmm slowly started building up to after school and then from two days a week to three days a week to five days a week to even leaving school to smoke weed with friends and then come back and um my eyes are already really red and Mm -hmm. my eyes are also really big and uh came back into school once my eyes were so wide and so bloodshot and i probably reeked of weed too Mm -hmm. it uh, i started feeling really self-conscious and i'd never had um, a weird self-conscious thought like that before. And um, the more I... I probably smoked weed for about a year. Uh, and towards and the you end, were a junior at this point? Or senior? Yeah, I was junior? a junior. Okay. And um, I actually started having panic attacks. Okay. And I started having an intense social uh, anxiety and social phobia and went to see a psychiatrist. I think I actually maybe saw two psychiatrists and they diagnosed me with um, um, general anxiety or something, or what was it? Marijuana-induced anxiety. No, actually, I don't think I was super open about my drug use then. My okay. parents caught me once, and yeah, and uh, when my parents caught me, my dad's a physician, and he was like, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna sit down at six a.m. every morning, and we're gonna talk about something." I don't remember any of those conversations. Okay. Um, but saw a psychiatrist, and he said, uh, you're, you're suffering with depression, and you definitely have a social phobia. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put you on some antidepressants, and we're going to put you on some benzodiazepines. Okay. And um, go from there. And um, for a while, life got better. I was treating my mind the way that I needed to. I was dealing with the underlying mental health stuff. Um, but really, to me, smoking weed induced those mental health disorders which I had never had before. I probably was predisposed to it with my family history, Mm -hmm. but it was dormant. Mm -hmm. Um, And the only negative thoughts I had were sort of in the normal realm of things, I guess. So I, uh, but I didn't really learn. I said I had liked weed. So even though I'm having these panic attacks that are worse when I smoke weed, I'm going to do it again. And had a panic attack while I smoked weed. And I did it about five or six times having those panic attacks. And would it be every single time you smoked weed? Towards the end, yeah. Okay. Um, but I had a good uh, probably 10 months of fun use before it got to that point. Yeah, okay. So it was, uh, I was like, all right, I can't do that anymore. Um, and at this point, were you taking still the antidepressants and the benzos? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, but, and you think those were marginally working in some respect? The antidepressants helped a lot. I uh, Okay. I actually found Zoloft to be the best antidepressant for me. Okay. And it um, really turned my tra- trajectory right around. It calmed my head and it made me confident and it made me happy again. I can remember very vividly towards the end of my marijuana use walking through the hallways, almost feeling like I was in an out-of-body experience for months. Okay. Um, and were you also taking the benzodiazepine then as well? I was taking them as needed. 
Okay. I would carry him with me, but unless I had a panic attack, I was trying not to. So I wasn't misusing him. I was trying to use him medically when I had a, a flare-up of some sort. Okay. And why I ask is because when I was working at the addiction center, the guys who struggled with benzodiazepine addiction described their life exactly that way. They were like, it felt like I had an out-of-body experience for like a month at a time where I just like was doing things... And I was watching myself doing things, interact with people, but like it wasn't me kind of thing. So, Mm -hmm. sorry. It was interesting hearing you say that. Okay, I digress. Back to your story. I felt totally like a zombie. Like I didn't have any emotion, wasn't capable of having a conversation with anyone. Okay. Uh, People would ask me questions and I would be stone-faced, unsure what to say, would shrug my shoulders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a strange time. Okay. But, and then still, so during that time where you were taking the psychiatric prescribed medication, it sounds like you weren't abusing that, you were still smoking weed, but still getting those crazy bad anxiety attacks. Yeah, and then after I realized enough is enough, and insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting yeah. different results, I'm not getting those results. Actually, I heard a better definition of insanity. Um, no, oh, what was it? Doing the same thing over and over again knowing the results aren't going to be different and still doing it anyway. Yeah, yeah, there we go. There we go. Okay, so you at least though weren't totally insane because you did change your behavior. You know, it sounds like you cut marijuana out of your life. So what happened then? Yeah, so cut marijuana out. Um, the antidepressants really helped. I said, okay, my, um, my mind is having some problems. Life got good again. I uh, felt happy again. I felt connected again. My parents started getting more trust back in me again and I kind of felt, again, the way that I I wanted to. But life, as it usually did for me in my adolescence, started to plateau, where the antidepressants either were hitting their ceiling effect and it was really just all me, but I've never been someone who likes to be stagnant. I always want Mm -hmm. to keep growing, and when I stop growing in any area of my life, I start to get really frustrated and search for something that's going to help me grow again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found uh, I found opioids, mm-hmm. and um, there's a lot of talk. Uh, I guess I want to hit the opioid epidemic for a minute too, yeah. uh, since that's I mean it's it's ravaging the country. But we have really two crises. We have people who are overdosing from opioids. Some of them were prescribed. Um, some of them were found illicitly or illegally on the streets, whether it was uh, illicit fentanyl and heroin or whether it was, um, or like I did towards the end, going into people's medicine cabinets and taking their medications that they mm-hmm. were no longer using. Mm-hmm. So we've got that crisis of people overdosing from them. But we've also got a crisis of um, chronic pain patients who opioids for some are a very effective pain medicine and now who aren't able to get them because of this um, polarity in the issues and mm-hmm. hyper focus on we need to uh, to curb opioid overdose deaths so we have uh, we're seeing a lot of under treatment of pain now too and, and a lot of pain patients who are in fear who are feeling like they have no other option but to take their own lives so we've got these two very conflicting ideas in Congress uh, is is saying let's put pill limits on things. Mm. Um, we'll stop overdose deaths. Had they asked the recovery community and the medical com- well, I guess some of the medical communities for it, but um, many uh, a lot in the recovery community know that 
you have to get to the underlying factors. You can't just remove a substance and expect the problem to get better. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like limiting those pill amounts, you know, it it almost is just making the black market even larger because the demand, of course, isn't going to be curbed if you just limit the supply. You know, so then the nefarious ways of getting more nefarious than stealing medicine cabinets, you know, maybe they're coming in from other countries, kind of like how... Uh, you know, a lot of the fentanyl we see on the sh- streets is shipped in from China. It's like if we're doing this limit of pill bottles, like, yes, okay, that's going to maybe help, but it's also going to create what's the opposite effect. It's going to create a lot more pills kind of coming in. So, I mean, interesting. I I still though would agree probably with limiting the pills and just, man, hoping it's going to have an effect and addressing this head on. But yeah, I mean, the opiate issue is really near and dear to my heart. I, uh, you know, working at the addiction center, there was guys who I was trying to treat, trying to help, and they would get out of the facility, and a few of them did overdose and die. And mm-hmm. it was really, really difficult because, I mean, how is that not difficult? An overdose, you know, the these these individuals were young. They were in their 20s. But then what really made it personal is there was a guy from my high school. Everybody loved this guy. It was just kind of like, I mean, you like wrote this script out of like a sad movie, essentially. Like he was one of the most popular, one of the funniest guys in the world. Um, everybody absolutely loved this guy. Like who would have been a comedian at my high school? I would have said it was this person. Yeah. He ended up, uh, I, I believe, overdosing. I mean, I don't know the exact cause of death, but I don't know. I think that that was it. And it was really sad. And it, it really though motivated me to almost work harder in medical school. It was right before I went to medical school that this happened because I was like, well, Jesus, I need to help help with this issue because this is just absolutely absurd. Yeah, the, the challenge with many issues that hit the, uh, hit the spotlight, um, many issues are highly nuanced. Medicine is highly nuanced. Opioids are highly nuanced. Pain and addiction mm-hmm. and mental health are highly nuanced, and we can't just have one-size-fits-all approaches or legislation um, yet a lot of times that's what we're seeing. We're, we're individuals. We're unique individuals, and we all need very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, some people need, need um, like, like uh, here's an example. When we first got here, our, um, our MAMS class was told, uh, you guys need to kill SIFOM. Just crush it. Yeah. Uh, so spend all of your time and energy learning the material, mastering the material, and doing well on the exam because you're in a year-long interview and SIFOM is is definitely the most important class to show PNWU and and, and really any... And so for you listeners, SIFOM is the first course of medical school kind of thing where where Matt is in with the first-year med students right now. So it's just like like that biochemistry is stands for Foundations Science of Medicine. I'm sorry for interrupting. Go yeah, on. Yeah, and it's intense, and there, there are things... Um, that I hadn't seen in some in some courses six eight years ago, and uh, definitely didn't learn it well the first time. It's hard and it moves very quickly, and so I mean we're all here partly because we need to strengthen our academics. That was mm-hmm. usually the most um, the area in our on our application that was the weakest. It certainly was for mine. I was kind of a bare minimum three zero. Uh, like 50th percentile MCAT guy mm-hmm. and um, hoping my life experience would carry me and it just didn't enough. All these medical schools were rejecting me saying, um, 
we're not sure you have what it takes to handle medical school. So here, so here we are. We're taking classes with medical students, and um, they told us in our in our um, our our pep talk, they're like, "You do well. You can get in here. You can get into any health profession school of your choice." So just focus entirely on that. And um, most of my classmates, or maybe some of my classmates, can do that. I'm not a guy who can just focus wholeheartedly on the academics. I have this underlying spiritual condition that if I don't maintain and if I don't take really, really, really good self-care of myself, I backslide quickly. Yeah. And um, that's what started happening in the first couple of weeks of SIFOM. It was so overwhelming to me. I was worried about, am I going to do well enough to get in? If mm-hmm. I don't, if I fail this MAMS program, I'm going to be blacklisted from medical schools. They already didn't want me before. They said, here's your second chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to do well. And I was worried I wasn't. And um, I started developing that brain fog again, like I had in my adolescence, where I was so unsure about myself and not able to, re- uh, to retain the material, sitting down, rereading passages and rereading passages, feeling like I couldn't comprehend any of it. And yeah. after trying to push through it for enough days, realizing that the harder I push through, no amount of pushing through is going to actually help me overcome that brain fog. It's a problem with my self-care. Yeah. I'm not doing enough for it. Well, and it's just, I mean, you hear this all the time. It's like, it's not a marathon. I mean, it's, <laughs> I screwed it up already. It is a marathon, <laughs> not a sprint. It's late in the evening. Cut me some slack, listeners. But, I mean, I and I understand also, though, where the admissions committee is coming from, though, because... All the MAM students I know who got in, I think, did do well. Not all of them. I shouldn't say all of them. But, yeah, that is definitely a nerve-wracking statement. And and I just kind of look at med school applications as just like a crapshoot. You know, you you say, all the medical schools rejected me. Well, I was essentially all the medical schools the same one, except I got into one. You know, and it's, it's just a game of numbers. I would just look at this as luck. You know, I would look at it as... If you do great in SIFOM, awesome. If you don't do great in SIFOM, whatever, you can still you still have a chance of getting into medical school. You were still interviewed in this past cycle, so clearly they thought you were um, competent enough to get to that level. Mm-hmm. And you know, this year, this extra year of experience and getting set, like dipping your toe into medicine a little bit more, it's just it's only going to help you. So regardless of whether you do. Um, you know, you get an A in SciFom or if you get a C in SciFom, either way, you can't tell me it's going to make your application any worse. Right. So I would just yeah. say, you know what, I just take a step back and realizing whatever you're doing right now, it's still going to help your application. Um, like there was a, some MAM students that I knew that went to medical school directly after MAMS, but there was also some MAM students that they did that one year long program. And then the next year they were a paramedic or they did something else that was beneficial to their application and then they reapplied and then that's when they got in just like this route to medical school is so bumpy and so weird and strange i think i just got insanely lucky i got into one school off the wait list way at the end in june and here we are so i i think i think you'll be okay and and hopefully this episode is going to help i mean i'm gonna i'll i'll pass on it on to the right people break some knees if i have to as but, long as the podcast turns out great and we don't yeah. say anything too compromising. Yeah, I, I can't <laughs> promise that. But, uh, <laughs> but okay, so let's get back to the nitty-gritty of the story. So you now in the story, no more weed, but ooh, opiates. Okay, that makes me feel good. So, you know, were you, you at first were just purchasing opiates, um, I imagine, from your friends or whatever. I was actually just taking them. I okay. was taking them from a friend of mine who wasn't using them anymore. Okay. Um, 
and then when they ran out, I was taking them from uh, from random houses in the neighborhood. Wow. That I would... Um, so this escalated very quickly then for it you? It escalated very quickly. Okay. And I was, before I knew it, I was, um, I never thought, I mean, at each level, I never thought I would do the things I did. I never thought I'd be um, going into people's houses and rummaging through their cabinets to take drugs. I mean, people would, the average person says, you're breaking into their house. My mind, my screwed up mind at the time says, their windows were open. Their they doors can't. were unlocked. I'm just walking right in. They're not using the medications. They're not. No, they didn't know I was in there. They didn't know I took anything. I didn't steal valuables. I didn't trash their house. I'm just taking something that I needed that they don't need anymore. So my mind already was processing it in a way that was very manipulative. Yeah, and like justifying. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's... Um, it seemed... I mean, it gave me a, a tremendous power rush. Yeah. I was like, I'm on top of the world. And how long did this last? Where you were, you know, getting your fix, for lack of a better word, by breaking into houses? So my my breaking into houses and my opioid use, opioid and opiate use, was about January of 2008 to when I entered recovery in, in, um, in August of 2009. So, so you again, were a senior? You had graduated high school at this point? I had graduated high school. I was in, I had just finished my first year of college. Okay. So yeah, everything escalated quickly. I started to, I mean, started a brief recap, started drinking it almost minimally at 15, started picking up drinking, smoking weed and other things hard, uh, at 16, by 18, I'm um, using uh, prescription opioids that none of which were prescribed to me by a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, 18, breaking into houses. 19, I started actually shooting heroin. Okay. And uh, did that. And for that's about a, a very typical two. progression. I feel like mm-hmm. you know it's a story kind of we hear all the time. I was in that same addiction center. Those guys would say like. When I, when I never imagined when I started kind of this path of partying or just getting inebriated, I never thought it would lead to here. But so many times it ends up doing that. So um, it's really cool that you're sitting here with me today, dude. And I'm glad you got out of this safely. So I'm sorry to interrupt. So you, at this point, had started shooting. So yeah, and actually before I started shooting heroin at... Um, so I had a potential turning point at 16 when my dad was like, you're smoking weed. We need to get you psychiatric help, have some talks with me, stop doing drugs, your life will be fine. For a while, that worked. Mm-hmm. 18, I had another turning point um, where I actually got caught breaking into a house. Oh, okay. Uh, was arrested on site, taken to jail, um, and, and uh, put in one of the holding cells for about six hours with uh, two of my friends who I broke in with. Oh, okay. Um and that was uh, that was another turning point. I felt about as demoralized as I could. Yeah. I never thought that jail would be in my cards. And um, did they send you to treatment at that point? Uh, or it must no. have been like your first offense, so maybe they were I pretty easy on you? Yeah, I wasn't sent to treatment. Actually, I don't even... I don't even think anyone suggested treatment... I think they suggested perhaps going back to seeing a counselor and getting okay. back on some medications, 
And uh, absolutely this time they were like, you have to stop doing drugs. And I was like, I'm done. You're right. Yeah. I don't like it. I feel terrible on the inside. I'm at, ni- at 18 years old, um, graduating senior. I've already I've made the front page of my local paper. The mm. DA said, we're going to make an example of you rich kids from Cape Elizabeth and uh, show your peers what happens when you fall out of line. Um, I mean, it was scary stuff. I was yeah. just barely an adult. Yeah. And my attorney um, was like, well, it's a uh, first offense. You're right. It was a, it's a scary thing. You uh, have to pay some restitution. You'll have to make amends to the family. You'll have to do some community service, pay a fine. That's it. First offense. It's drug-related. Um, just stop doing drugs. Everything will be, be fine. So honestly, I, I made an honest commitment to myself sitting in that jail cell that I would never do drugs again. When I got home about midnight that night, I uh, I had about 19 Vicodin left, and I just snorted and popped them all that night. Damn. I just needed to, and again, I had that earnest commitment never to use again. So and at that point, though, was your addiction, was your tolerance so high that that 19 was, you know, you could get away with 19, or was that essentially a suicide attempt? It wasn't a suicide attempt. It was just an attempt to turn off my brain. I, okay. I, I, but was that more than you could typically do? It was more than I typically had done. Okay. Okay. But it just didn't matter. I mean, I just, I didn't do it all 19 at once. I just kept doing a few and didn't feel an effect and did a few more. And and actually, that was, uh, I didn't feel anything that night. I didn't get any relief at all. Okay. Just but and you didn't bed. overdose or anything? Didn't overdose. Okay. I was always very careful. I never... Um, I mean, there were a few times in my life when I felt so bad that I didn't want to be alive anymore, but I never wanted to end my life, Mm. and so I never attempted to. I just, um, I would hope that I would wake up in the morning and that I just wouldn't be alive anymore. I was uh, actually very cowardly in a, a lot of times. I didn't feel like I had the confidence to actually end my life, um... Yeah, but I would I would argue that I think it's more cowardly to actually do it. Because I think a lot of people feel like that, where it's like, I just want this pain to end, you know, and they look at suicide as a potential means of doing it, and I think that's the bitch way of doing it. Like, and I think so actually the more strong and the more noble and the more courageous way is hanging around. Like, when you have that terrible, difficult feeling that a lot of people have had and they don't want to admit it, I think the actual more noble thing is to not do it. So so I would argue that it wasn't the cowardly thing. So And that can be a very uh, murky debate too. Mm. Is it uh courageous or is it cowardice or, or what? And so stuff. you that one you know, you took a shit ton that one night after jail, then did the addiction just sprint even faster kinda after that? Basically, my thinking at the time was, all right, I've gotten caught once. I just can't get caught again. Okay. Um, Wasn't convinced that, um, obviously my life wasn't working, but wasn't convinced that I had a problem with drugs. And the reason I wasn't convinced was because drugs were the only thing that were actually opening up my life. They were only the thing only, that was making making you feel better. Yeah, they were the only solution and the best solution best solution that I'd ever known. Mm-hmm. Even though they were causing incredible problems in yeah. my life and in others' lives, but still the benefit outweighed um, the negatives. So I, I always weighed that stuff. 
and um, knew that if I can't be okay with me, I can't do any of these other things on the outside. So I may as well try to get myself to that level where I can participate in my life. Okay. So I, I just, um, I kept... Uh, so at that point, were you still then kind of breaking into houses, or did you change your means of how you were getting your opiates? Uh, I started turning more to, to bottles, drinking bottles of wine in my parents' basement for a while and take kind of my mind off of the uh, breaking into houses and the opioids for a while. Um, I had just graduated from high school, and so I was really excited to go to college. I didn't actually get into any of my top choices, but my my boss, uh, actually he wasn't my boss then, but my... Um, my soon-to-be boss was the dad of, of two of my best friends growing up who mm-hmm. lived just down the street. And we used to do everything together um, through our adolescence. And he said, uh, you're coming to USM, uh, the University of Southern Maine. He said, um, I run a lab, a toxicology lab here on campus. And I had sort of known a little bit about that, but not much. He said, um, come to USM and come and work for me. You clearly are gifted in science. You clearly have an interest in it. Mm-hmm. And that's what my lab does. We work with high school students. We employ college students. And um, and um, he gave me one of the best jobs of my life. Okay. And for six years when I was getting my bachelor's in human biology, I worked in this toxicology lab doing all sorts of fascinating projects from working in um, with lunar dust to... Uh, assessing whether um, beet and blueberry extract could reverse DNA damage or prevent DNA damage caused by heavy metals like chromium and arsenic. And, Interesting. And so I, I started having these really remarkable scientific uh, experiences as okay. well as getting involved with college. Um I don't think I drank or did any drugs for the first few months of college. Oh, so it okay. was, a, it was a, again, a, that clean slate. I said, Cape Elizabeth is the problem. All the people of Cape Elizabeth are the problem. Yeah. Um, I've turned this corner, and um, I really liked my classes, and I liked the lab, and I liked the friends that I made in college. And so all that stuff did enough for me that I was able to not do drugs because I had the things in my life that I needed. Mm-hmm. And again, that theme of my life plateaued, and I wasn't sure where it was going, and I stopped growing. And at that point of college, did you tell anyone that uh, a few months ago I was arrested for stealing opiates and breaking into people's houses, or did you not disclose that at all? Um... I... No, I didn't disclose... I mean, I didn't really have a need to disclose it to anyone. And, uh... And also, I wasn't really open about it. I yeah. would have gotten very belligerent. Uh, the people who knew about, well, I mean, obviously the whole town of Cape yeah. Elizabeth knew about it. But uh, my boss, and actually he was like a second dad to me um, mm-hmm. when I was in my adolescence and when I was working in the lab, he knew. And, and uh, uh, actually, I'm going to backtrack for a second, go on another tangent. So, right, but so before. Um, Five months before I got arrested for that, my one of his sons was a, a freshman at the University of Southern Maine. Mm-hmm. He applied for an undergraduate research fellowship at NASA, mm-hmm. and um, he was awarded um, the opportunity to bring a team to uh, um, Johnson Space Center in Houston 
and design an experiment and fly with it in zero gravity on board NASA's uh, Weightless Wonder plane. Wow. So my buddy said, um, um, Matt, you're coming here to USM. You're, you're, you're one of my best friends. Uh, do you want to come with? And um, I said, absolutely. I mean, who, who says no to yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, so I was really looking forward to that. That was going to happen in June, the same month oh, I got okay. arrested. Yeah. And obviously when that arrest happened, my boss read about it in the paper and and um, said, Matt, we can't take you. <laughs> yeah. NASA is going to do a background check. Yeah. And if they search your name, they're going to they're gonna see It's pretty easy this. to find, yeah. So he's like, you'd be a liability. And it, it, it pains me to say it, but you can't come. Yeah. I was crushed. I was mm. so looking forward to that. And that was, um, I lost out on that opportunity because I couldn't put anything above my need to um, really get to get fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're in, but you at least it's, it seemed like you were making some attempts and doing sort of well the beginning of college that at least the beginning of college I certainly was doing the exact opposite of that where it was like oh this is finally my freedom finally my time to like drink with all my friends yada yada but so when did you, that kind of life of being sober in college sort of adjust and change for the worse so some a few months in I don't I don't know the exact timeline of um of that freshman year I life had had plateaued and I was drinking a lot. I started drinking a lot, and then I got turned on to heroin. Okay. Um, so event, I, at some point, you just kind of were like, I'm going to start drinking again. Was it like a triggering moment, or was it like, hey, everyone else around me is doing this? Yeah, it was sort of like it had worked for me before. I'm not going to overdo it. I never... Yeah. Actually, and that was a lot of my friends got really fucked up and wanted to get blackout drunk, mm-hmm. and I never wanted that. I always... The scientist in me, I was always like... All right, we're just going to get to a certain point. Mm-hmm. So if I take five pills, or if I take six beers, or whatever, this amount of this, that amount of that, that's that level where I'll be okay, where no one will know I'm on anything, but I'll also be at the level of calm and clarity that I need in order to conduct my daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of started going back, back again towards that, and and. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was my pattern. I just okay. I just so started just sort of boozing again. One thing sort of led to another. Started doing pills, but then you got on the hard, like I say, hard stuff. Even but the street opiate, essentially the heroin, and started shooting. So, how did you? You know, you at that point, how were you kind of feeding this addiction? Were you continuing to steal? Uh, I don't know. Were you maybe using like student loan money kind of thing to get? At that point, I was just buying everything from my paycheck from my job. Okay. I wasn't, um, yeah, wasn't breaking into houses. Didn't necessarily need to steal it. Okay. I lived in a in a really really big apartment complex, and it was just everywhere. Wow. Anything we wanted was was there. Wow. Um, but eventually, I I didn't wanna I didn't wanna keep paying for drugs. <laughs> mm-hmm. it had a pretty heavy toll on my bank account. Yeah. So at some point, the idea seemed good to start breaking into houses again. Wow. Um, so I went back into that same neighborhood. <laughs> did you really? Which uh, wow. actually was the same neighborhood that my parents lived. So again, I didn't have that thought to think that 
my parents may know these people. Yeah. These are things I, I realized afterwards. I just didn't have any shame. I didn't have any... You're just so out of it, yeah. So out of it. It was... It, only my needs mattered. Yeah. So, okay, you're, you're, you know, basically doing the same shit that you were doing before. So how does this story now transition into... Uh, at least the beginning stages of recovery. Like, how did you get into treatment? Did you end up getting caught again? Or did someone force you into treatment? Did you end up deciding that you wanted to go to treatment? So, yeah, about um, six six to nine months after I, uh, after I first did heroin, I ended up in a, in a treatment center. Okay. Oh. Um, I was very close to getting arrested for breaking into another house. Okay. And... The the family noticed, and they started an investigation. And um, the detective was trying to figure out who it was. And I don't think they suspected suspected me. But at that time, I started having some type of morals. I hadn't had morals really in a long time, like what I was doing was wrong. That thought really hadn't crossed my mind, but I started feeling really, really guilty that I was the one who had broken into that house, and I simply didn't want that lifestyle anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know where that thought came from, but it it really, it like thrust into me, Hmm. and I was like, holy shit, this isn't okay. At 19 years old, I'm far too young to be this miserable. And life has to be better. Mm. So after um, after lying to the detective and lying to my parents and lying to everyone that no, it wasn't me, I was like, "All right, I'm going in to talk to the detective. I'm giving a full confession. I just want, I just don't want this anymore." Yeah. Um. So that's what I did. I went in, and he said. Um, I'm glad to hear you. Uh, I'm glad to hear you do that. We actually didn't find any of your fingerprints in the house. And I said, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so I could have gotten away with it. But, but the jig was up. Yeah. There was, at that point, it wasn't the arrests. It wasn't the losing, losing friends. It wasn't the grade slipping. It wasn't being cut from the basketball team. It wasn't any of these external events that really, I mean, they all led up and influenced um, this downward spiral, but it was really the inner pain I felt versus anything external that motivated me to want to get well. Okay. And um, so at that point, at that point, I was committed to getting help. Okay. Um, and wow, what happened? So did did like your parents prior to this say like hey we want did they know you kind of you were an addict and did, did they or had an addiction issue and were they like hey we want you to go to this addiction center or like did they kind of end up suggesting it at that point like hey like you know it's time for you to do an inpatient setting um I don't know why my mind is going so blank actually this is the uh this is my turning point. Usually the turning point is like right at the top of someone's mind. And Dude, Sci-Fom is just <laughs> ruining us. Sci-Fom is just ruining us. Just damn Sci-Fom. Well, whatever. 
Either way, I think anyone who walks into that inpatient setting, that time of their life is certainly very foggy, very challenging. I remember I would talk to individuals who said they couldn't even really remember things, and they would end up getting as fucked up as they could on that drive into the the treatment center. So, so actually, so some of the some of the few months before I went to to treatment were a little bit hazy, but I can remember the the few days right before treatment, like it was yesterday. Okay. I got um. I actually thought that the detective was going to not prosecute me, and I don't know where that idea came from. I mean, that's his job to do yeah. that, especially given a confession. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it, he just kind of pocketed it for a little while, maybe to see what I was going to do. And um, But at some point, he had to pass it along to the district attorney, and, and I got a call from my attorney, who had been with me since that first arrest mm-hmm. a, a year ago. and. My attorney called me. I was just leaving work. It was 4 p.m. on a Friday, and my attorney said, Matt, the, dis- the district attorney just issued a warrant for your arrest. Oh, wow. You have until 8 a.m. Monday morning before the police show up at your door and haul you to jail. And uh, this was your second time. They're going to bring back up your previous charges. They're going to charge you with new charges, and you're looking at five years. Whoa. Um, so he said, are you ready to admit that you have a drug problem. And um, I just caved. I said, yes, I'm, I have a drug problem. Okay. And I need help. And uh, I started, um, he started looking for some treatment centers. My mom started looking for some treatment centers. I started calling places. Interestingly, the detective and my attorney were having some conversations over the those months and saying, seems like Matt has a drug problem. Mm-hmm. He needs help. And was this getting prosecuted through the drug courts? Because I know, at least in Connecticut and some other states that I've lived, there have been like total separate courts for drug-related and mental health-related issues. Or was just kind of just standard main court, or do you know? So we had had drug court um, up until 2009 uh-huh. or 2008, at which point funding... There were some funding issues, and the the director of the Office of Substance Abuse ended up, um, I, I think, pulling that contract at the state hmm. level. So there wasn't drug court in place when I could have benefited from drug court. So my attorney said, that's problematic, but we're going to try the regular court, and you have, um, let's see what we can do. So we, um, I ended up finding a treatment center in Pennsylvania to go to, a 30-day inpatient, and... Um, my attorney said, uh, all right, again, you've got until 8 a.m. Monday to get out of town. It's not fleeing. It's going to treatment. So mm-hmm. if, if the police show up at your door and your parents say he's in treatment, that's going to that's gonna be good. Yeah. They're not going to come down to Pennsylvania and bring you, haul you back up to Maine. They're going to say, good for him. Let's, um, we'll deal with it uh, in September when he comes back. Mm-hmm. Wow. So... At that initial stage of treatment, were you going through some pretty heavy withdrawals, or was your withdrawal okay? My withdrawal wasn't terrible. I had I had some some effects. I think the the mental craving was strongest of anything. Okay, and did they put you on like Suboxone or any kind of like you know tapering method like that? That treatment center at the time wasn't using Suboxone or okay. methadone. They were using naltrexone. But okay. only for some some patients. Yeah. Um, I think after about five days or seven days, they put me on naltrexone, which uh, helped my cravings enormously. Okay. 
Good. And then, and then the other thing I was dealing with was all my mental health stuff coming back. I hadn't been on the antidepressants for a while, so I was very closed up. I didn't talk to anyone, staff, or other patients for the first seven days of my stay. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, exactly uh, what you're not supposed to do. But, I exactly. mean, people people do it. So what was that, that experience like, though, being in the inpatient? Uh, by the end of that 30 days, did you sort of like it? Or, you know, were you itching to get out kind of thing? Uh, I liked it a lot. After about the those seven to ten days, I started getting more medically stable. And I had started seeing a psychiatrist who put me on... Um, that same antidepressant I had been on, as well as a, um, an antidepressant sleep aid. Okay. And so I started sleeping better. My mood started getting better. I started eating again. I started feeling more or less okay again. Realized I was in a safe, safe place. Realized that um, my legal problems were back in Maine. I didn't have to worry about that right now, mm-hmm. even though, of course, I did worry about it all the time. So everything started to get okay again. I started learning... Um, tips for how to how to manage my crazy thoughts um did you think though at that point you really did have a drug problem or was your motivation more i know this is the best thing for me to do because of my legal issues so i was i was fully convinced that 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 was it that um, I needed to stop doing drugs. Drugs were a problem. Life's were a, life was a problem. Even though drugs had acted as a powerful solution, they weren't working the way that they once did. And to be honest, they really weren't working at all. Mm-hmm. So I was I was all in. I was so desperate for a okay. better way of life that um, people could have put continued to put obstacles in my path, and I was going to jump over them because I was so motivated. It was one of the most um, it was probably the the most motivated I'd been in my whole life. Yeah. Really, my life depended on it. Yeah, and that's good. And why I ask is because, you know, some of the individuals I would see who came through our treatment center, you could tell they were only there because they knew it would minimize their legal issues or it would help out their case. And, you know, sometimes we would see success, but a lot of times, like, they, they were there for the wrong reasons kind of thing. They didn't really think they had a drug problem or, or a, you know, an addiction problem. And they were like, well, you know, I just got to do this because my lawyer tells me. You know. And it was it was really sad to see. And, and so I always would try to really dig into the patients I was working with and like, well, why are you here? Like, why do you want to be here? Like, at the end of the day, you can walk out and leave if you so choose. Um, so, you know, it sounded like you at least were there for the right reasons and fantastic, but it was a 30 day stay and the stats, you know, what they always say is your most likelihood of relapsing is in that first six months to a year. Yeah. So what was it like leaving the, um, leaving the facility, going back and dealing with your legal issues? Did you go to like a halfway house or? So going into that treatment center, my lawyer had basically said, Going to treatment is what you need to do. It sounds like you know it's what you need to do. Let's do it. But even if you successfully complete treatment, there's a strong likelihood you're still doing jail time. Wow. So that was terrifying to me, but I didn't have a choice. My health came first. Mm-hmm. And I said, all right, I'm, I've I'd never been super spiritual or super religious, even though I had grown up going to church. I still kind of at that point really like plead. I was like, huh. Yeah. All right. Let's. Uh, I'm done. That's. Let's. Um, whatever spiritual power is out there. Yeah, I, I need know. help. I don't even know what you <laughs> I'll have pray exactly. to anybody right now. Yeah. So, so you left and you did what? 
So after I left, I, I, I advocated to stay for an extra two months at the treatment center. Oh, wow. Because I knew that uh, if I went home, they were going to throw me in jail. And I didn't want that, especially because after those 30 days, I had felt at my prime. I felt so excited about life, felt mm-hmm. like I knew what I needed to do. Was that your longest piece of sobriety in a long time? Like, because if you extended, you were probably at, what, 90 days or something? Well, actually, they didn't let me stay. Oh, okay. okay they sorry. had said, um, you're doing you're doing well. We would like to release you. Uh, and I was like, oh, I really want to stay. And they were like, well, your parents aren't going to pay for you. Yeah. And we're, quite frankly, we're not going to allow you to stay here because you're ready to leave. And yeah. You've done it. You know what you need to do. We can move you to a lower level of care. So they said, um, go back up to Portland, Maine. Um we're going to help you get connected. Uh, we'd like to send you to a halfway house for three months. And uh, I remember having a phone interview uh, with the, the halfway house owner when I was there. And he said yes to me. I don't remember the conversation, but he said, yep, come up. You'll be a good fit for our program. Um, so I stayed. I, I moved right into a halfway house. And... Uh, I had already finished my first year of college, that um, Portland was where I was going to the university, and so I said, I can go back to college, I can go back to work. Actually, my boss was really supportive at the time, and um, he always has been very supportive of me, and and he said, um, do what you need to do. I know it was just a phase, I know you've gotten into lots of, of legal problems, but you're still an important asset to to the yeah. lab and you're an and important person to me yeah. and exactly so he said your job is waiting for you when you come back um, and I told him that I maybe needed a little bit of time off and a little bit of time off uh, from from school as well so I I don't think I worked or went to school for the that first semester after mm-hmm. I was in the halfway house um, but same thing I've never been really good with transitions and so for the first 30 days of my stay at the halfway house I was too afraid to talk to anyone. Even though I was feeling good, I didn't really participate in much. But I had started going to 12-step meetings okay. and had started very hard working uh, the 12-step program. And, was and, getting... and for the listeners who don't know what that is, that's the AA. Were you going to AA or NA at that point? Or did you really care? Um, the AA was better oh, okay. in, the, in the area, or at least that's what um, the people were going to when... Uh, when I was going to the halfway house, I just kind of gravitated to where they were all going. Yeah. But um, but I mean, really, twelve step programs they can they cut across a lot of different issues. They have twelve step programs for uh, food anonymous, sex anonymous, gambling anonymous, many other anonymouses. And um, you know, steps- it's funny you say that you liked AA better than NA because the joke always, I worked in like a halfway house, and yeah. it was it was almost like a little higher care than a halfway house, but whatever. Um, and they would say, you go to NA if you want to find someone to hook up with. You go to AA if you want to get sober. <laughs> that was the running joke in our house. Um, and yeah. I didn't, I, oh God, I would, whatever. Um, but so you, now for the listener who maybe they are dealing with addiction, maybe they are um, just so kind of dipping their toe into this dealing with treatment, going to AA meetings. A lot of things I would hear about AA is I don't want to do AA because I'm not religious. And I think that's the biggest challenge that a lot of people have at those AA meetings. So 
you know, you also identified kind of, it seemed like in the same boat-ish as maybe not super religious. So how did you overcome that hurdle? Certainly AA is not, um, you don't need to find God or any sense of God in order to recover. That is a huge misconception. Um, that conception or that idea of God is even very hazy. I mean, there, there, some people, some people say, um, you don't have to believe in God. You just have to realize that you aren't it. Mm. And, uh, basically leveling of our ego, leveling of our pride and realizing that we're powerless over our lives and that, um, we can't continue to run on this self-will cause it wasn't going anywhere. So let's humble ourselves mm-hmm. and realize that there is another way and you don't have it figured out. So that's one school of thought. Another school of thought is just work through the process. Um, the language of the 12th step was very intentional. I think the program was written very well having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And so that to me isn't vague, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. You do these steps, you're going to have that spiritual awakening. We're not going to be able to define it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you go, you put the work in, uh, shed all your old behaviors, learn more about yourself, um, learn about who you aren't and also about who you are and shed who you aren't and gravitate more towards who you are, you'll start figuring this stuff out and you will have that type of spiritual awakening. Yeah. Um, and well, it did certainly, certainly for me, and I didn't know how to how to really describe it. I just started feeling along the way that life was going to be okay. Oh, well, that's great. That's great. And what I, you know, I, I, I don't live with uh, substance abuse Disorder, And so I, I haven't, I've attended AA meetings, but not necessarily for myself. It was because I was essentially being like a chauffeur for these guys. I would drive them around and it was really nice because I was, that's where I was able to really talk and get to know these individuals. But what I would say is the thing I liked best about AA, it was really the best and biggest community in the sobriety community within the sobriety community like i know there's other options of you know smart recovery and you probably know way more than i do but it just the aa meetings are so well attended you can look them up so easily there's such a large community and i just think the worst way to handle any kind of mental health challenge is all by yourself so the one thing of just at least going to these meetings is you're going to meet under other individuals who are dealing with the exact same problem that you're dealing with and the same challenge and I don't know how you guys are going to get through it. I don't know exactly what to tell you what to do, but talk to the other people around you because at least you can find them some camaraderie in that. So when you left that treatment facility, now you're living in the halfway home. Um, it sounded like you and your other uh, housemates were going to AA meetings, um, started to dip your toe back into school, dip your toe back into work. Now, with the legal issues, did you ever end up having to do jail time? I didn't do jail time, and actually, I don't have a record. Oh, good. My record was wiped clean. That was, um, I I do call it a spiritual experience. My attorney was convinced I was going to do jail time. The mm-hmm. district attorney wasn't going to let me get away. She said, we gave you one chance, and you blew it, and mm-hmm. you did it again. Um, so we have to make an example of you this time. But I... Um, it started unfolding probably because I, I was so committed to doing this that nothing was going to stop me. And I 
So I, the requirement was after re, after treatment, um, I stay three months at this halfway house. Well, after three months, I had been through all the 12 steps. I went through them very quickly. I went through them in about two months. Okay. Wrote that fourth step in about three weeks of just writing eight to 10 hours a day because I wasn't talking to anyone. And so that I may fourth as well. step is like the pivotal one, right? Where you're like, isn't that where you're admitting like all your wrongs, all the people you've hurt? Is that the one? Yep, it's okay. uh, it's very draining. It's the step that typically sends people back out to drink and drug because it can be so revealing and it can be you you can be so raw throughout the whole process. But I had already I had lived all that stuff. I had already felt terrible about myself and mm-hmm. felt like a piece of shit and felt quite honestly terrible physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally in every way possible. So working through it, I had gotten comfortable being in pain and all types of pain so seeing it again really wasn't overly exhausting or hard for me I just kind of said I trust this process my sponsor gave me good direction I trust that the other guys in the house who went through it have a better way of life now I'm just going to keep going and it illuminated a lot it illuminated that um, a lot of my problems went back to uh, certain core themes like I'm afraid of failure or I'm afraid of being abandoned, or I'm afraid of being alone, or um, I can't trust people, or I can't trust myself. Okay. Um, and so those were really the big ones, and I started, that fear manifested itself in a lot of ways that I built a lot of resentment up against. Um, I think it's realistic to say almost everyone I ever came in contact with. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have everyone I ever came in contact with on that fourth step list. Yeah. But you start seeing the pattern as you work through this stuff and you can extrapolate it, or at least I could extrapolate it to other areas of my life, realizing these patterns playing out in resentment, fear, and insecurity, and discomfort. And it all went back to um, that I'm... It all A lot of it landed on me. Of course, people are going to rub us the wrong way. But part of it is I didn't know how to respond to that. I didn't have any coping mechanisms. I didn't have any... Um, ability to confront situations. If someone said something really terrible to me, I stomached it. Mm-hmm. I didn't say, what the hell? Yeah. I would just say, uh, I would say nothing. And um, eventually I would believe it about myself, even if it was untrue. So I had to unlearn some of these really self-destructive thoughts and behaviors. And I did that a lot through that fourth step. And I can remember uh, writing three full notebooks full of um, three ring notebooks full of information wow. and reading it to my sponsor and it taking about 10 hours wow. and uh, feeling free feeling like that was the, f- the first time in my life where I didn't have a chemical in my body that my mind was clear hmm. and it opened up something in me and freed that life in me that was trying to get out and after I finished reading that um, that fifth step, my sponsor drove me back to the halfway house. It was about 10 or 11 p.m., so most of the guys were still up. And it was like I was about 30 days in uh, to living there. And it was like I walked around and introduced myself to all those 12 guys for the first time. Mm. And I was like, hey, I'm Matt. I know I've been coming around to meetings with you for a month, but hey, I'm actually talking now. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> so it was this really this cool thing, embarrassing thing where I had to have an introduction to people I'd already been around. But they were like, 
cool. We're glad to know you're not a serial killer. And, yeah, right. And that you're actually doing well. Yeah. So, did were you very active? You were very active in AA at the beginning. You told me, but not as active now. Yeah. So I was very active for a while. Actually, I've always been fairly stubborn. Really. Um. The requirement was go to uh, seven meetings a week for your first nine yep. days. I remember that, yeah. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. I can benefit from three or four. I don't think I ever went to more than five meetings a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, they weren't happy about it, but I could generally argue my case well enough that they were like, oh, all right, you're going every other day. Yeah. You're working with your sponsor. You went through the fourth step faster than any of the guys in the house. They're like, you're committed. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Um, it's always been about that balance. Yeah. Working, um, it was overkill for me to go to seven meetings. Plus, I started getting, uh, I started going back to work. And I, so I was working full time and I was going to school full time. Yeah. About throw a meeting in there too. It's hard. Yeah. So they were like, you're doing, you're doing everything you need to. We can't necessarily give you a demerit for not meeting the quota. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd say for the first, uh, I went through the steps twice. Okay. Um, once in the beginning and once about once in 2012 so i guess about three years in second time i went through it was a very different experience it was less of an intellectualizing experience and did you do that because of a relapse or did you just not want to do it i had again stopped growing and i i had always been very committed to my sobriety but that didn't necessarily mean that i would always take care of myself or take care of my mental health the way i needed to so i had a lot of backslides in a way I like to call them spiritual bottoms in recovery Mm -hmm. just feeling very empty and broken again Um, never had that desire to go back to drugs and alcohol which was a actually kind of ironic to me yeah that's actually was where I wanted to kind of next take this conversation because you know I was working in the halfway kind of area of this treatment center so one thing we would hear all the time were about relapses and you know it just the thing we would always kind of hear a lot is relapses are just part of the recovery process you know it doesn't I would always try to encourage someone who maybe they just left the house and then I'd see them back at the treatment center two weeks later because they had relapsed it's like well listen don't look at this as a failure like maybe you tripped but like, let's learn from this. Let's just try to really, and I, and I hope I wasn't sounding too cheesy or like patronizing in front of them, but you know, at the end of the day, it, so you haven't relapsed since that, No. you know, and like, that's almost an anomaly. I feel like in, in treating addiction, it's, it is sad how many people have to relapse a few times before they really get it. And a lot of times people don't always recover and maybe overdose or maybe just continue with that addiction lifestyle so you how would you say you avoided like you never had those strong urges to continue to use or any like triggers where uh you didn't get into medical school or like uh, your girlfriend dumps you or something where it's like "Ah, i want to go back to what i used to do there were times for sure when i thought about it i mean the thought never leaves um, but that doesn't mean you act on it or you have mm-hmm. to act on it. The, the compulsion isn't always there to do it. Uh, so I never, I never, it never, I had just remembered so vividly how bad it got and how drugs even at the end 
weren't doing for me what they what they should or what I what they once did even. So it just didn't even seem like the right thing. And when I had found the gifts of recovery so quickly, I said, recovery is the answer. These are all the things that I've been searching for my whole life. Mm-hmm. This sense of, of um, intrapersonal connection and interpersonal connection with others. And I felt f- for the first time like I was comfortable being me. So even even when I would have those backslides, I knew the process of recovery and knew what recovery looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that always motivated me to, to stay in it. And the reason I sort of say it was ironic was I, even though I knew I could no longer do drugs, I never thought that alcohol was as big of a problem such that I couldn't have a drink when I turned 21. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't going around like the halfway house or the treatment center saying, I'm doing this, but I'm going to drink at 21 and there's nothing you can do about it even though at times that's what I thought. And mm-hmm. 21 is an important milestone. And that's, yeah. what, that's what people in the U.S. do. And they go and get drunk. And it's almost like if you don't go out and drink on your 21st birthday, it's like you're not having a 21st birthday. Yeah. So it was uh, going through that fourth step illuminated that fear too and um, that maybe I couldn't drink for the rest of my life. Um. But it also reaffirmed the desire that I don't even want to anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to because this program is the answer for me. Okay. So I didn't, um, I turned 21 and uh, didn't drink. It was sort of an anticlimactic birthday. Yeah. I don't even think anyone asked me if they wanted to go out and if I wanted to drink because everyone around Probably me at the time thing. knew I was in recovery. <laughs> and, yeah. And were others in recovery. Yeah. So it just was just another birthday. So I remember we talked about this in school a few days ago. So now that you're sober, I feel like, you know, once we take away all the drugs, it really kind of then illuminates underlying mental health issues. And you already talked about how in high school you were sort of dealing with depression, a little bit of like social kind of phobia, anxiety. So then did those get worse or did those issues get better when you removed your drugs? Immediately they got worse. Okay. Um... And, and going back on psychiatric medications in rehab and then staying on them for the first year of my recovery uh, again stabilized me uh, medically and psychiatrically and so that was doing that working through that fourth step and starting to make amends and doing the other steps um, also freed me from myself so I didn't I stopped I started losing those toxic thoughts and the ruminating thoughts mm-hmm. and um the things that I, I wanted to get rid of that I didn't know how. So it was a very therapeutic process as well. And some of it was writing because of the writing and some of it was because of the action and some of it was due to possibly some other spiritual factors that we just can't ever explain how they work. Mm-hmm. But however however all this stuff fit together, it did all the things to give me the life today that I have. So... Did you eventually stop taking psychiatric medication, or are you still taking? I stopped after that first year. Okay. Um, there have been a couple times when I've gone back on them. Sometimes it was just that antidepressant sleep medication. Sleep mm-hmm. can be challenging for me. I've never been a good sleeper. Yeah. Uh, I actually went back to see a psychiatrist 
a year ago because I was um, in that brain fog again and losing motivation in my work. And it was a very stressful work situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that didn't help. And I was applying to medical school, and so that was stressful and didn't help. And I was trying to <laughs> do well in the MCAT, and then I didn't do as well as I wanted, so that didn't help. So my mental health started slipping, and yeah. uh, I just said, uh, again, I know I'm in I'm in enough pain that I need to do something about my life. And were you seeking a therapist at all at this point? I've tried, I've tried therapy. I haven't found it very helpful to me. Okay. Part of it, I think, is I need the right person to work with me. Yeah, that's um, a big part of and it. And that doesn't even, and actually often for me, that means someone who's not very intellectual, although I do like having conversations with intellectuals. The person that really helped me the most was that second sponsor in 2012 okay. because he he didn't make it intellectual. In fact, I had intellectualized the recovery process like to a science. Mm-hmm. I was like, if I write... Um, if I write a daily log and I meditate at night and I reflect on my day at night and I write all these problems out of my life um, and continue doing so that that 10 step is I guess for the listeners um, 10 step is sort of a continuation of the fourth step where you keep monitoring your fears and resentments and your conduct either sexual conduct or other conduct um, every day and continue to monitor your behaviors for if your thoughts and behaviors are healthy or not. And if they're not healthy, then you kind of write it out and reassess it and read it to someone. Just, I mean, everything that all humans should do anyway, continue to check how they're doing in life. Mm -hmm. And um, I lost that train of thought too. Yeah. Where were we going with it? I don't even know, man. So, so now, okay, you're, uh, now I want to picture Matt like two out, two hours, two years kind of outside of this. Or where did kind of this part of your recovery transition into, you know what, I want to pursue being a doctor? Cause it didn't sound like anywhere in that story you really said like, uh, I, I want to pursue medical school or, or this whole time were you thinking about going to medical school? My dad's a physician and I have a lot of physicians in my family and, I always looked up to the profession as a whole, but yeah, I I, um, I had some thoughts of going into medicine, but I didn't have strong commitments. I just would kind of voice it. I think when I graduate, I want to go into medicine, and so I'm studying pre-med. Um, my boss in the toxicology lab thought I would be better suited to working in the lab, mm-hmm. which I thoroughly enjoyed, and often think of that too. Should I go into a lab instead of um, into medicine? But I really like, I really like working with people. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean that's kind of the typical answer that people give. But yeah, you should you should want to help people if you're yeah. going into medicine. Well, in some capacities, there are of course still those aspects of medicine where you don't need people skills. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> you'll meet them in our class. That's for like damn sure. Being a mortician or a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pathologist, <laughs> radiologist. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think you're going to be a great doctor one day. I hope that you end up in psychiatry kind of like me. So let's kind of now end this conversation on let's try to touch that listener that is maybe starting to realize that they maybe have addiction. Maybe they are starting to get in trouble with the law or they're just realizing that they're maybe using uh, a substance too much or maybe they're using like one of the hard substances, whatever you technically want to classify that as. So... 
First off, I guess, what would you advise someone who is hesitant to go seek out treatment? What, what would you kind of say to that person? So I would say it's certainly, it seems intimidating. You shouldn't say it seems intimidating, then pause ever to an audience. But nah, whatever. <laughs> but it is intimidating. It's, it is very intimidating. And it's... um. I mean, we shouldn't diminish that. We shouldn't diminish what people are going through. Their struggles are very real, and they're very personal to them. And oftentimes, people who enter recovery have been belittled. Their problems have been belittled. Their dreams have been belittled. Others have wanted to analyze their life or direct their life. And if that stuff isn't jiving with what you want for your life or what you think your life can be it's okay to admit you have a problem. And that's always how it starts. We still have this code of silence in our culture. And it kills me. People literally die because of silence. Mm -hmm. I mean, most overdoses happen alone. And that's so sad that um, had they been able to voice to even one person maybe that they were struggling with something, they could be their life could be radically different and they could be mm -hmm. navigating this recovery path and it's not quite always that simple either again it's all so nuanced but but if you're struggling it's okay that's the first thing i would say and find someone who you can trust to confide in if it's me and you're listening at um at pnwu i'm on campus i'm happy to talk with you um i only want for your life what you want in your life. I don't know how your life is going to play out. I don't even know how my life is going to play out. But there were some people in my life who who really shaped, uh, who really influenced me from, because of the way they, they, they approached working with me. And one guy mm -hmm. was, when I went to treatment, this guy, Father Bill, who, um, really a remarkable person, he said to me, and uh, I think he said to everyone who walked through that door, you're going to make the world a better place because you recover. Yeah. And it was so powerful that it's like, how did he know? How does he even, he doesn't even know who I am. He doesn't know how big of a piece of shit I felt. Yeah. And he could have easily said, um, the statistics are against you. 90% relapse rate or any of those other negative statistics. But instead he chose to focus on the positive saying, I believe in you. That was huge. Um, I mean, other mentors in my life, like the detective even, he believed that I had a, a problem and that, um, that I wasn't the problem, that I had some problems in my life and was willing to work with me to help me find treatment. Um, so it's, it's like, oh, and another guy, I went through a motivational interviewing training in 2014, okay. which I think is awesome. Have you gone through motivational interviewing? Uh, we've been changing it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Not much. <laughs> There's a trainer in Maine who said, uh, the phrase is always, meet people where they're at. Yes. Which, again, it's it's good. I mean, we, we should meet people where they're at. Mm -hmm. But he said, even better, meet them where they dream, mm -hmm. which I had never thought about before. We are, as individuals, filled with really incredible potential and lots of dreams and hopes and aspirations that are trying to get out. And sometimes we don't know how to get it out. And sometimes we don't know how to put it in action. Mm. And that's why we're social creatures, because we can 
rely on our mentors and our friends to help encourage us that these things are worth pursuing and maybe give us the guidance to do it. Yeah. So it's like their their dreams matter. And if you're struggling, your dreams matter. Yeah. I'm not just going to talk with you. And I hope the person who you tr- uh, confide in doesn't just talk to you like you're only the mo- um, all of your problems in one. You're some of that, but you're also everything else. And so let's start clearing away um, these behaviors and these thoughts that aren't helping you reach your potential because they're just weighing you down. And then let's help you actually achieve your dreams. And yeah. you can do that. Yeah. So now let's like transition that advice now because I, I, my most experience working in the addiction industry was in like kind of that halfway setting like I keep talking about. So I was talking to these guys and I would always make pseudo analogies to my experience in the psych ward mm-hmm. where like the psych ward feels terrible. It's not fun. But the hardest part of the psych ward is actually leaving the psych ward. And, like, it's hard to really understand that when you're in the moment because you're like, finally, I can, like, walk around outside like a normal freaking person. But, you know, trying to then reacclimate with life and be a normal, quote-unquote, person is the very challenging part. And so we would have that conversation a lot in our house, how, like, okay, you guys might have liked the last 30 days worth of treatment at least by the end maybe you got some crush on one of the hot girls there or whatever you know something to get you through the day now even in this halfway home like uh you know you're around a bunch of other recovering addicts like you said the first 90 days we would say that same thing try to hit 90 meetings in 90 days which is awesome however that's not sustainable though Mm -hmm. like at least not i don't think for many people you know going to a meeting every day it, it it's maybe possible, but I mean, people got to pay bills. People have families, and you want to develop these other aspects of your life. So I think it's actually much harder. It's just different to treat that person who then is like three months out or three months just in the start of their recovery, like 90 days sober, 120 days sober. So we're now talking to advise that person who's maybe like you, just trying to leave the halfway house or just trying to leave the treatment center and like think back when you were like oh I'm trying to extend I'm trying to extend and they were pushing you like no like dude we you got I know it's scary but you got to do this like what what would you say to that person I would say don't do it alone because that's um I mean I'm a big lone wolf I do a lot of things alone and uh I don't always like asking for help Um, And I struggle more when I don't ask for help or when I try to do it on my own if it's a task that isn't meant to be done alone. I mean, recovery happens in the community. Um, Not everywhere. Sometimes you have to be careful with who you share uh, you're in recovery with because they may not be super supportive, but Mm -hmm. the systems are there. Their recovery is everywhere. There are 23.5 million people in the U.S. in recovery. Mm -hmm. We're absolutely everywhere. And... um, we all do want to support each other. So come and, um, I mean, come and, come and find us. Try to explore some of that. And uh, certain things you are going to do on your own. I'm not saying be with people all the time. I'm a big introvert. I need yeah. my own alone time. But find a group of people that you really click with. Yeah. And uh, start going to meetings with them. Start doing other social activities with them. Stay connected with that halfway house or that treatment center. They often do a lot of alumni things, and that's, that could be a way also to give back to the place that helped you, as yeah. well as to um, have that social support as you're finding your new area of social support. So now, 
I, I like that advice. But now I almost want to hear, because you brought up an interesting point that I think a lot about, and because I know I know a decent amount of people in in recovery, not a ton, but a decent amount. And even though I feel like I'm better versed than some other people, I still don't always know certain rules or certain ways I can act around people in recovery. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then let me just hypothetical situation. Um, I love golf. Yeah, you know, and I have friends in recovery who love golf. Um, not all the times when I'm golfing, but sometimes when I'm golfing, I might have a alcoholic beverage, you know, beer, bring some whiskey on the course, whatever. And so one thing that I always just think about and struggle about is like when I go on golf outings with people in recovery, like I've heard both sides of this, like, you know, I don't want to drink around that person because I don't want to ever make them feel uncomfortable. I don't ever want to make them feel weird or whatever. But then I've also spoken to people within recovery who are like, I don't want to make you feel like you have to live differently around me. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm strong enough. I can handle, I make my own decisions. I want you to do you and I'm going to do me and we can both live in harmony together. So how would you advise someone who is like me, who doesn't live with, uh, substance, uh, dependency and in just being able to integrate in a healthy way where you're not necessarily making that person in recovery feel, uh, strange, but you're also not putting, an exorbitant amount of restrictions on the person who's not in recovery either, like they have to walk on eggshells kind of thing. I would say it's always essential to be self-aware, and that's for both parties, or just your interac- your interactions with anyone as a human. Um, a lot of people won't have enough of that forethought or self-awareness to even be having this conversation right now to think about it. Some just... Um, don't worry about how things affect them. They're like, well, yeah, I'm doing me, you do you. And if it clashes, it clashes. Um, But being, if there's ever any uncertainty, just have a conversation about it. That's always the best way to, um, to get through it. Because you may, you may not know, you may, you may choose not to drink. Like for me, for example, had you not, um, yeah, I mean, if had you, had we met out in a bar or something and, you didn't know me, you might have, where am I going with this? You might have, oh, I don't know. You, uh, oh, so you might have, you might have chosen to not drink because you said, here's a guy in recovery. Yeah, and I don't want to, like, offend them or, like, feel like he can't be my friend or, like, I need alcohol to be friends with people or I don't know. Yeah, so you didn't know that I'm actually super open about it and not worried about it. And Mm -hmm. many of my friends do drink and they drink around me and my parents drink around me and it just doesn't faze me for the most part. There are times when people are getting plastered in bars or parties and I'm just like, that's too much, I'm out. Yeah. for the most part, it doesn't faze me. But had you, um, if you really wanted to have a drink, but you were not doing it because you were worried about me, that's, I mean, that's kind of problematic for both of us. You're assuming one thing about me and you're not living your lifestyle. So it's always, it's like, just ask. Yeah. Yes. And have that conversation and say, is it okay if I drink? And hopefully that there, that if I weren't comfortable with it, I would say, I would prefer you don't. Yeah. And um, that isn't always going to happen. Sometimes someone is going to just say, yeah, it's okay if you drink because they don't want to seem like they're weak. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess you have to have some awareness around that too to 
to sense whether maybe they're holding back and they really want to say, no, please don't drink. Yeah. I really just think kind of the key communication. You know, I heard this story of an individual, someone who was living in our house, and you know, he went to go visit his brother in the weekend in the city, and suddenly the brother had like um, no wine or no alcohol or anything in the house, and um, he just... He was like, I don't want to, like, change the dynamic between me and my brother. Like, we used to play video games all the time. And, like, it just, he's like, it got really weird. And so what he found worked for him is just trying to talk. And But I think the the other thing is realizing, like, okay, you need to continue, though, to have that conversation. Because while it may be cool for me to have a beer, you know, with someone in recovery, if I'm getting really hammered, then I could maybe start to feel that, that exactly. uh just weirdness and like I shouldn't get all defensive like whoa you said it was cool bro like I thought I could get all here like just you need to be have that open communication but be able to continuously be open to having that conversation because the dynamic could change or the situation yeah yeah absolutely man well any last words of advice anything else you want to spew out into the internet wisdom philosophy here Wellness means so many different things to so many different people, and you don't have to prescribe to any one pathway of wellness. I mean, you can even have non-traditional pathways of wellness and just just pave your own way to figuring out what it is, and that works for a lot of people. Surprisingly, you wouldn't think so. But, um, but yeah, just find, find wellness. Keep adding wellness into your life. September is National... Um, Mental health and uh, substance use recovery All right. month. Woo. I'm stoked for that. It's a great time to celebrate the people uh, in recovery in your life. Or if you're in recovery, let's do some fun recovery events together and celebrate recovery in the community. Well, great, man. I think that's a good way to do that. We'll have to kind of put our brains together here so we see what we want to do on campus. But uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I think you guys will all agree with me with this statement that I full confidence that you'll be a great physician one day. You know, if it happens uh, in this next cycle, if it's going to take you maybe even longer, whatever, as long as you end up in that position, I think it's the right position for you because I just know you're going to do such a good job, whether it's end up being as a psychiatrist like we keep talking about or if maybe some other aspect of medicine uh, intrigues you because at the end of the day, no matter what discipline of medicine that you go in, you're going to be treating people who live with addiction. So regardless, you're going to be able to connect with those patients in such an intimate, meaningful way and and I think you're just going to be a great physician, man. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you appreciated this episode, Please be sure to rate it, share it with your friends, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're liking it. You can find me on Instagram at at Logan Noon. That's at L-O-G-A-N Noon, N-O-O-N-E. Thank you very much for listening. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got GEICO, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. GEICO will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. GEICO. Great service, without all the drama. I haven't really woken up until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. 
Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. McDonald's. I'm loving it.